Welcome to the Contrast Church Podcast. Contrast is located in Grandview, Ohio, with the mission to help people be with Jesus, become like Him, and live out His mission together. For more information on attending our meetings, our missional communities, or giving, visit contrast.church. We're going to be in Matthew 12. And uh, we are concluding... This is, uh, this is week 40 in Matthew, which is pretty exciting. Yes, 12 more weeks. We've been in there a year, um, which is pretty awesome. And uh, we have gotten, what's, what's remarkable about Matthew is we've gotten a really cool glimpse of who Jesus is in so many different ways. And we're at this part in, in Matthew where we're basically in like part four, and, and uh, Matthew centers the entire gospel around five main chunks of teaching. And Jesus gives these five chunks, and it's kind of similar and representative to the Torah, what the, the Jewish people would have known. And Matthew's kind of like, hey, this is the new Torah. This is the new law, the fulfilling of the law. And uh, we are at this point now where we've seen several opinions of Jesus, some good, mostly bad. Uh, and we're at this point now where we see his family come into the scene. And I think it's interesting because if you, if you looked at the last 12 chapters of Matthew, all of these pages... We only really see his family mentioned like one or two times, really in the first few chapters and then like once in between then and now. So for 40 weeks, Jesus seems like this guy who's kind of on his own and his family's not really relevant. And we're going to get to see his family here in an instance. And I think it's, it's, uh, it's interesting because today is, is all about family. It's all about um, joining a family of believers in Christ and, and being a part of a family. And a church should feel like a family in a lot of ways. Uh, That means good and bad. You have the annoying sibling that you can't put up with. You have the big brother that you really look up to or the parents that you love or even maybe sometimes don't love. And in families, it's like that, right? It's the most beautiful thing, but also it can be the most difficult thing or the most hard thing uh, because of placing yourself in intimacy and vulnerability together. So in the church, it's the same way. And we're going to see today what Jesus' family looks like. So we're going to jump right in, starting in verse 46. This is Matthew 12. Matthew 12, verse 46. While Jesus was still speaking to the crowds, his mother and brothers came and stood outside speaking, or asking to speak to him. Now, like I said, this is the first time, really in a long time, several weeks, we've seen Jesus' family. And uh, a little bit of context here. What's going on is, I'm, I'm kind of cheating here, but I'm stealing a story from the Gospel of Mark because a lot of these stories overlap, right? And they use each other for the writings. In Mark 3, uh, it says this. It says, Now Jesus went home, and a crowd gathered so that they were not able to eat. So this scene is Jesus in this house. There's so many people standing room only, just wanting to hear the words of life, right? Like, will this guy heal us? What is he capable of, right? It's really exciting. And, there, and then there's so many people, and it says in verse uh, 21 in, in, Ma- in Mark, it says, When his family heard, it, that, uh, heard this, they went out to restrain him, for they said, he is out of his mind. Now, I don't know about you, but if your family thought you were out of your mind, that'd be pretty difficult, wouldn't it? Or if, like, you were going to go do something, and they're like, you're out of your mind, you know, maybe your teenage years, you're like, but dad, I love him. And he's like, you know, you're out of your mind. And you're like, maybe I was out of my mind, you know, as a teenager, right? But Jesus is a grown man here, so he's not a teenager. But, I mean, I just, I think we forget, like, the, the gravity of the fact that your fam- Jesus' family, in a lot of ways, really even misunderstood him. You know, I mean, he grew up with siblings. He grew up a pretty normal life for a lot of his life. 
And I imagine that he would have had good times with his siblings and probably bad times because they were a bunch of sinners hanging out with Jesus. But, like, he had a family. It wasn't like he just appeared and he didn't have relationships. It's not like, I mean, imagine that you in your 30s, all of the relational stock that your family has instilled in you, whether your biological family and a kind of an adopted family, your friends, all these type of people, like, they have, they have ascribed such worth to you in your identity that you probably don't even really realize unless you really think about it. Or you have a moment like this where, like, your family is really just kind of against what you're doing. Like, maybe, you're, like you said, you're dating the boy that they don't like. Or you're, you want to move, right? And you're like, you know, you're the first generation to move outside of Ohio, you know, which, which is, is just wild, right? Um, or, or you want to go, I don't know, be an actor in L.A. Or, or be a missionary overseas or whatever it may be, right? I'm just trying to hit a large swath of people here. Uh, any actors? No? Okay. We're in, we're in Columbus. There's no actors here. But, uh, but it basically, like, it, it, it's, 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 like, just take a moment and think about when you're Jesus and you're going to do this, you know, I mean, I think he knows, that really no one is going to understand, I mean, up until after everything happens, he dies and resurrects, even then they're still like, I don't know, Jesus. Is this really, like, was this the plan? I mean, think about, like, you just, you have a career that you feel called to. Like, you just really want to be, I don't know, you really want to be a dentist. I'm just giving an example. And everyone around you is like, no, it's a terrible career field. Don't do it. It's not worth it. Whatever, right? You can give all the cons. I don't know if there's cons of being a dentist. But, and, and like, after a while, you start to really question, like, Maybe I shouldn't be a dentist. Maybe this isn't what I should do. And, I mean, I want to honor my parents. My parents seem to be, like, kind of against it. And maybe I should just do what they want to do to honor them. Maybe I shouldn't do what I feel like I'm called to do. Can you imagine the tension that would put in your relationship? Or what happens if you go and become a dentist, and every time you come back home for Christmas or Thanksgiving, your family is kind of like, you know, not, they, they, you feel like there's tension, there's animosity, they're not proud of you, right? This is, I think, essentially what Jesus is feeling. No idea what happened here. But in some ways, like, I think we can resonate. Have you ever had a moment where you felt like your parents disagree with something you want to do? Have you ever had a moment where your sister or your brother is doing something and you're like, that is not right. Let me go tell them and put them in place. Jesus here has a family who is concerned about his growing fame. And it's funny because this is, this is something we don't really understand in our culture. Like if you had a brother who started just blow up on TikTok or, or Instagram and had like thousands of followers and went viral, Nobody would be like, hey, man, you need to shut that off right now, you know? They'd be like, no, let's monetize that, you know? Let's make some money or, or build your fame, right? In this culture, it was very risky. If you grew up in an average, maybe low-income slash middle class, depending on a carpenter and what they did, like, you were not to push yourself. There was a dream of being higher status, but it was a very dangerous endeavor because the higher you rose, if your family wasn't able to attain to that level, it was a dangerous place to be. So here Jesus is growing all this fame and popularity, and his family's like nervous about it, right? Now, whether they thought he was crazy and what he was saying was crazy, or they just thought it was wild that this many people were attracted to him, we don't necessarily know, and we can't read between the lines. But what we do know is that it says in Mark that they went to restrain him, for they said he is out of his mind. How about your own family saying you're out of your mind? And then what happens is, in, in Mark, they say that, and then the, the Pharisees come, and, and they say, Jesus is possessed by a demon. And he's like, how can I be possessed by a demon? I just cast out a demon. That's not how that works, right? Satan doesn't work against his own people. And he kind of he puts them in their place. And then at the end of that passage, it says, Then Jesus' mother and brothers came, after this little story, standing outside. They sent word to him to summon him. So this is where we're at, if you integrate this into Matthew. 
His family are standing outside, and they're, they're summoning him. Like, they're ready to pull this guy out of here. Now, there's, uh, it's highly assumed in the scholar community, the scholastic community of the Bible, that, that at this point, Jesus' dad would have been dead. Just because of his not being there, there's no, there's no evidence that he was around at this point. And it was actually very common for people to die at a young age in this culture. I mean, even the common flu could kill you pretty quickly and easily. Uh, and so it's wild to think that only his mother and siblings came to, to see him, which would be very rare in this culture. His dad would have came and gave him a talking to, right? So in some ways, Jesus is kind of the man of the house, right? He's the oldest. He is Jesus, so who wouldn't want to put him as man of the house, right? Let's, he's the perfect firstborn, right? Uh, but in a lot of ways, the, his family doesn't seem to believe in what he's doing. In fact, I imagine that Jesus, if you've ever felt a burden of having to take care of your family, I imagine Jesus felt it. Dad dies, you are the oldest son, which culturally then meant immense ramifications in terms of the family and the, the, um, your, your legacy and heritage and all this type of stuff. But even today, like if your dad died and you were the oldest, you don't think that you'd feel a ton of responsibility for taking care of your family. So here he has essentially left them to go do this mission and they come in and they're trying to kind of persuade him and want to talk to him. Now what's interesting is you look in verse 47 of Matthew, the next verse, Someone told him, Jesus, look, your mother and your brothers are standing outside wanting to speak to you. And it's interesting, the word outside is actually mentioned twice. It's mentioned in Mark as well. It's very clear that this house was so full that they couldn't even get inside. It's also, I think, a bit interesting that his family, like physically, is on the outside of the inner people that want to hear what Jesus has to say. Those who are following him, those who are his disciples, are the closest and most intimate among his life. Like, the family's there, but they are at a distance. They've been put a physical boundary of the house uh, on them. And so they're like, probably like, hey, I know this guy. He's my brother. He's my son. Let us in, right? And so the person goes, and they tell Jesus, and he's like probably just sworn by these people in this house. And, and this is what he says. To the one who had said this, Jesus replied, who is my mother and who are my brothers? And pointing towards his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Now, you read this and you're like, Oh, man, Jesus, like, what is up with that? You don't seem like you're very kind to your family. Like, a lot of people think, like, Oh, I just need to just abandon my family, follow Jesus, you know? Like, be a terrible dad, husband, father, son, whatever, brother. Because, like, Jesus did that, right? And we're kind of missing, missing... The point of this, think about what is, what, if you think in your head, try to guess this in your head, you don't have to, it's rhetorical. What is Jesus' primary mission on earth? In your head, what is his primary mission on earth? Now, would that, your answer, supersede your family? I think, I, I put it as simply as I could, his mission is following the will of the Father and glorifying him. Following the will of the Father and glorifying him. Now, maybe you didn't have that in your head. Maybe you did. Congrats, right? Um, but following the will of the Father and glorifying him. Now, a lot of times we read, the, we read the, the accounts of Jesus and we think, like, that's not what I would have thought. Like, he's to be love. He's to heal people. He's to set the captives free, right? All very important. But at the end of the day, everything he's doing is in line of what the Father is willing for him and he's submitting to. And at the end of the day, it is glorifying the Father. And it's really interesting because if we we thought the basis of love was only on being nice to people, like his family, then it would make sense. What is he doing? Why is he not being nice to his family? He's not letting them inside. That's so cruel and mean. Jesus hates his family, right? We can easily draw that conclusion. But what if true love 
is rooted out of a following of the Father's will. Will the Father uh, push us in any trajectory that would not be truly what love is? What is love? Love is God. Like God defines what love is. So is it possible, is it provocative enough to claim that Jesus is actually loving his family in this moment? Now think about that and let that kind of ruminate as we get through the, I'll, I'll kind of pick apart this passage a little bit more, but is it possible that Jesus is loving his family in this moment? Now when you read a face value, you're like, no way. Right? He's not even letting them inside. What if it's raining? It doesn't rain very often in the Middle East, but what if it's raining, right? It's not snowing, I know that, but he's not letting them in. What he's doing is he's showing his priorities, and that's why he points to immediately, he asks, who are my mothers? Who are my brothers? Very easy answer. Oh, the people out there? No, no, who are my mothers? Who are my brothers? Pointing to his disciples, he says, here are my mother, and here are my brothers. His priority is his eternal family. If you're writing stuff down, that's an important note. His priority is his eternal family. Jesus cares more about the eternal than the earthly. Now, the earthly is so much the reality of what we live in. I mean, like I said, there's this spiritual dimension that, that, that plays with the physical dimension of our world, but oftentimes everything that we see is the physical reality of things. So for us to think eternal, it can be very hard to make that jump sometimes. Like, as if, if you're a follower of Jesus, you are believing that there's more than just the physical realm of your hands, right, in front of you. There's more to it than that. And for, for Jesus, in this moment, he is reminding them that there is an eternity at stake, that that is the priority, that his disciples are his true family. Now, this is kind of interesting because, you know, at, at this point, he's, you know, we're 12 chapters in, like, Jesus has made some very close followers. His family has been kind of, you know, off to the side. But I find it interesting that this far in, they've probably heard things. They clearly showed up because they had heard things. That they weren't like, oh, yeah, that makes sense. You know, like, oh, yeah, Jesus. Yeah, he's a great guy. Like, of course he's doing this. You know what I'm saying? Like, wouldn't you think you, your brother was Jesus? You'd be like, yeah, it doesn't surprise me. He was valedictorian. Like, I'm not surprised, you know? <laughs> right? Like, classic oldest born, high achiever. Of course, he's going to be a doctor and an astronaut and a football-playing king in space. Like, he'll do it all, right? He'll do it all. If you get that reference, good for you. But he'll do it all, right? Like, of course. Like, wow. So I find it a little bit astonishing that, that they, they almost don't seem to get what's going on here. And I, I think it just shows how often we even don't get what Jesus is doing. Like, when I ask you, what is his priority? Did you think following the will of the Father and glorifying him? Probably not. Like, we, we're like, no, you're like... His priority is to love people. It's to heal people. It's to do all these great things, which he only did for three years, right? And at the end of the day, why did he do all those things? Remember? For a deeper meaning. He didn't just heal people. He didn't just feed people to show them an earthly kingdom. He pointed to an eternal kingdom. That's why he didn't just, that's why he's not just 2,000 years old today, like in some country where we just bring people to him and he heals them. And so like, that's all he does. He's just this little healer and he heals people of their ailments. He cares much more about the eternal than the earthly, and this does mean in family relationships. Think about this. I, uh, I love this passage John in John 15. We talk about this all the time. This is really what our, our philosophy and our mission as a church is rooted in, is John 15. Jesus says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the gardener. He takes away every branch that does not bear fruit in me. He prunes every branch that bears fruit so that it will bear more fruit. You are clean already because of the word that I have spoken to you. So remain in me. Some translations say abide in me. Be in union with me and I will remain in you. 
Just as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it remains in the vine, so neither can you unless you remain in me. I am the vine and you are the branches. The one who remains in me and I in him bears much fruit because apart from me, you can accomplish nothing. So we, all right, if we start here, right, John 15, we are abiding in the vine of Jesus. We are capable of, of kind of being in his trajectory and we're being fed nutrients through the vine, right? A vine is the main idea and then the branches shoot off, right? And so we're all branches, essentially. If we choose to follow Jesus, we are grafted onto this vine, which makes us almost um, um, one with Jesus, and he would use the language of family, right? We are brothers and sisters of Jesus. And what's so interesting is, like, when we think about marriage, marriage is actually similar to this. Like, you are grafting to become one flesh. That means more than just intimacy, but just becoming one in, in all life, in all trajectories, in all areas of your life. And in marriage, the same way, like, when we think, we think, together, right, as one unit. Your body is not your own, it's theirs, their body is not their own, it's yours. You become one unit. And in the same way, this is what abiding in Jesus looks like. It's becoming one with Jesus. Now, most of us that, that are married, if you are married, you know, like on our Instagram or our priorities, we're like, God, wife, kids, job, you know, you have your priorities listed out in your bio because you only have so many characters, right? You got to keep it simple, <laughs> right? And you have these priorities and most people do You've probably like, God, family, friends, or whatever, right? But, but at the end of the day, like, you know, do we actually believe in that? Meaning, the Greek word pistis is to believe. Do we like put ourselves in action to believe that, to prove it? Like when you believe in the stability of a chair, you sit in it. You don't just say, I believe in that chair. You sit in it. Do we believe in such a way where we sit in it? And I, I think about, like, if we do, it would look a little bit like this in some ways. We might actually upset people, but we're actually loving them. Jesus prioritizes an eternal family and disciples over his own because they were getting in the way of his faithfulness to the Father. That they were actually causing, and I would actually say, for lack of better words, what they're doing is sin. They are pulling against the mission of God and trying to remove Jesus from his calling. Now think about this. Think about if they did take him. And they're like, hey, you know what? Let's time up and just like let him live in our house and he's crazy, he's mentally insane, whatever, right? Well, he wouldn't have suffered and died on the cross for us. He wouldn't have continued the mission that he had to do. The ramifications of, of his family and what they thought was right could have ruined the entire mission of Jesus. And so he has to set up a boundary, which is probably a pretty difficult boundary. If you have family that, that drive you nuts sometimes or they're unhealthy or any of us do, right? Like we have to set up boundaries. In fact, I, I thought about marriage with Sarah and when we... When we we say our covenant vows, and we, 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 you know, we said to follow Jesus more than each other and to like love each other out of that. Like We still sin in, detra- in detracting each other from our relationship with Jesus, meaning sometimes I want to hang out with Sarah more than Jesus. Um, and, and in some ways, I'm pulling her from Jesus. She can pull from me. And there's several ways that can happen. But imagine then if you marry a non-Christian or you, you follow Jesus and someone doesn't, imagine then the tension that you have to feel then, right? That's why you know, we're so serious about dating, courtship, marriage, all that kind of stuff, because when you get married, your goal is glorifying God. Just as Jesus' mission is glorifying God, your marriage is glorifying God. And, and it's so important that both of you care more about God than each other. And that sounds weird, because in a wedding, you're like, they're so in love, right? And it's kind of all about their love. It's not about an upward love. But Jesus is kind of doing the same thing here. He's like, hey, it's not that I don't love my family. Jesus is not being this meanie who hates his family and doesn't give us right to hate our family. He's showing us that his priority is first 
to the eternal kingdom and the will of the Father. Think about it like this. What if Jesus, by being a great son to the Father first, would in turn cause him to be a great earthly son? What if Jesus, by being a great brother to his eternal family, his brothers and sisters in Christ, would in turn cause him to be a great earthly brother? Think about that. What if out of the faithfulness that he's pursuing, he's actually becoming a better brother, a more loving brother or son? So he's not writing off the priority of an earthly family. He's not saying, like, ditch your family. But he's putting into words that the intimacy of the eternal father and eternal family always trumps the earthly reality we live in. The earthly reality is temporary. Think about it like this. If I pursue Jesus more than Sarah, will I become a more loving husband? The answer is yes. <laughs> Unless I'm pursuing some, like, my own God, right, a false God. If I'm pursuing the heart of Jesus, will I become a better husband? If I'm pursuing the heart of Jesus, will I become a better son? Will I become a better father? The answer is yes. Because if you say, well, I don't know, well, look at Jesus. Do we not think that Jesus was the prototype for being, for man, for humanity? Do we not think that he was the prototype of what it means to be a son or a father or, or a friend? He is that prototype, and his priorities here matter. On the other end, what's cool about baptism is baptism is like, you know, we don't do this in the backyard with two people around. We, we do it purposefully in front of everyone because there is a beauty in reminding yourselves of the family that you are invited into. Like when you go to a wedding, you are a witness of the wedding, which I don't know if you know this, but you are attesting, holding accountable, loving the couple in their marriage. So if you've been to some weddings, you signed up for something you probably didn't realize, right? But that's your goal. Like you are now, you are assuming the burden of loving and caring for them in their marriage. When you see people baptized, you are assuming the burden of loving them in Christian community and helping them love Jesus more. And why that matters so much is because, you know, you think about this relationship, you ever see someone or hear someone call you like brother in Christ or sister in Christ. It's a little bit weird and archaic, but what that means is like we're family, right? That this level of family transcends our earthly family in some ways. And what's beautiful about that and what Jesus is getting at here is he's like, this relationship between me and my disciples, and later he mentions sisters as well, brothers and sisters in Christ, is that this is my eternal family. This will last forever. These relationships will last forever. Unfortunately, earthly relationships won't. That's hard to think about because, like, I mean, that's hard to fathom with your family that they won't last forever. Marriage, even, well, it won't last forever. In heaven, this is probably weird to say, but Sarah and I will be sisters in heaven. In fact, we're technically sisters now, or sister and brother now in terms of our, our marriage. So yeah, we're husband and wife, but we're also, she's a sister in Christ and I'm a brother in Christ. And so our job in the same of being married is also to spur one another on as brothers and sisters in Christ. Now I know you're like, that is just so weird to think about, right? Like you don't get married to someone being like, can't wait to be your sibling in heaven, you know? <laughs> Nobody's thinking about that, right? That would ruin your day and your wedding night. But, but you, it's true. It is. That's why Jesus, isn't it weird? He says, who are my... Who are my mother and my brother? My mother and brother are right here. And you're like, mother? Which one of these is your mother? You know, it's weird that he says that, isn't it? Why? Because the whole family included has this beautiful intimacy when we choose, when we choose to follow Jesus, which means that when you sign up to follow Jesus, you sign up to be in a family, which means that you can't run off and do your own thing. And I, I think about baptism, it, what's so cool about it, and it's terrifying, and you're getting dunked in front of a bunch of people, is... You're like, hey, I'm family. Like, I'm vulnerable. Like, I'm, I'm a human. So of all of you. Like, we're all here. 
And what's so cool about it is that it reminds you that, that our family transcends just this like blood level, but it's this deep eternal belief and will. A good way to put this, and I was thinking about like what's a good way to like really help this like just stick tangibly. Um, if you're if you're married or engaged or dating, just raise your hand. I'm not. I'm just curious here. Okay, if you if you this week have a date night planned, okay, putting this into practice would be, hey, we're not going to go on a date night. You're going to go spend time with Jesus because <laughs> you need it. And I believe that you doing that will help you be a better husband or or wife or boyfriend or girlfriend or fiance, than us spending time together. That would be putting this into practice. Some of you care far more deeply what your spouse or boyfriend or girlfriend thinks of you than what God thinks of you. And some of us care far more what our kids think about us. Like the, the, the parent child, and some of us are a child, we're trying to, we care more about what our parents think of us than what God thinks of us. We're trying way more energy to, to mend our parent-child relationship, our spouse relationship, our friend relationship, then we actually think about what does it mean to be a good friend, brother, husband in light of Christ. So tangibly thinking, what are, what, are, what are some ways in our lives that we honor that relationship above all else? What boundaries do we have to put into place? Jesus says it pretty simply here. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. And so I, I, I want to transition um, this into communion. And I think one of the reasons why we offer communion every Sunday is it's, it's a communal experience. Jesus, uh, the night before he was betrayed, he took communion with his, his, his family, his disciples. And it's kind of wild because they're, they're celebrating and drinking and eating. And he does this. And then like, you know, 30 hours later or less, they're all gone and abandon him. But in that moment, he shows us that, that there is beauty in family. So... Uh, if you're a believer in Jesus and you, take, you can take the Lord's Supper, the bread and cup, what that is is the sacrifice. It's a reminder of the sacrifice of what Jesus has done for us. And we do it not indiv- just individually because, like I said, when you sign up to follow Jesus, you sign up to be in a family. And the family signs up to love and to care for and honor you. So in the same way, when we take communion, when we take the bread and the cup, we're reminded, when we look around and other people are doing it, that we are all on the same level and we are all one family. So I'm going to give you a little bit of time to partake in that, and then we will get into baptism. Thank you for listening to the Contrast Church Podcast. To learn more about us and how you can be a part of it, visit contrast.church.